0: You are now listening to Doc Fermento Discovers the World, episode 66, where I interview Dr. Lee Allen Dugatkin. He wrote a very wonderful book called The Prince of Evolution, Peter Kropotkin's Adventures in Science and Politics. I've been fascinated with um, this character, Prince Peter Kropotkin, um, this year. It was a new discovery for me. I never knew the story of um, Mr. Kropotkin. Uh, Don't be confused. We got Kropotkin. This guy is Peter Kropotkin. And then the interviewee is Dr. Lee Allen Dugotkin. Okay, hang in there with me. All right. Um, Dr. Dugotkin is a professor and distinguished university scholar in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisville. His main area of research interest is the evolution of social behavior. He's currently studying the evolution of cooperation, the evolution of aggression, the interaction between genetic and cultural evolution, the evolution of antibiotic resistance, and the evolution of senescence and the evolution of risk-taking behavior. So um, it's pretty interesting. I just wanted to talk to... um, Professor Dugatkin, about Peter Kropotkin and uh, this idea called mutual aid and also altruism and how uh, as altruism exists in nature and its role in evolution. And I really had never even read um, Dr. Dugatkin's bio. I didn't even realize he had such an interest in um, some of the things I am, especially antibiotic resistance and, well, anyways... So, it made for a fun uh, convo. I hope you get something out of this. Uh, do check out his book, um, "The Prince of Evolution." It's a wonderful little paperback, quick read, great stories in there uh, about Kropotkin. And then this other book I just cracked open. I'm really enjoying. It's called "The Altruism Equation: Seven Scientists Search for the Origins of Goodness." I have links in the show notes. It's episode 66. I hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening. You know, the reason I have you here is someone told me to check out this guy, Peter Kropotkin. Mm-hmm. And so I did some digging around the Internet, and it seemed pretty fascinating, uh, especially since it's counter t- to everything I believe about, or I used to believe about politics. I didn't want to read about some anarcho-communist. I'm an, uh, I'm an American, for God's sakes. <laughs> right. right, sure. And then once I dove in, I have been obsessed. I think it it's amazingly important, and I want this man to be rediscovered.
1: <laughs> I un- I understand he's the most incredible person I have ever researched in all of the years I've been writing. He he's he's a remarkable man. He was a polymath, and you know most people discover him the way that you did, which is. Um, through his politics but actually um, you know I just dis- I came at it much more from the perspective of the science he did which of course eventually led me into his politics but I mean he was one of these people that just dabbled more than dabbled in everything I mean he he had he he wrote books on everything from um, anarchy as a political philosophy to um, evolutionary biology to uh critiques of russian literature to a 700 page book on the french revolution and they're all brilliantly researched the guy could speak uh obviously he spoke russian he could speak french he could speak a little bit of german he 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 understood english he came over to the united states twice and was a rock hero i mean this is an incredible guy
0: yeah he really was like i couldn't believe the stories you were telling um in the oh, by the way, in the book, the Prince of evolution uh, that 's where I really dove in and really, really became fascinated oh, but what a rock star his his reception here in the United States was overwhelming
1: it really was, and he he, he came twice and he gave this series of talks um, mostly on the east coast in in New York and chicago and d c He spoke at the Smithsonian he spoke to sold out cra- crowds at um, halls in New York that, that held 2,000 people. And he talked about both the science of evolutionary biology and the politics of anarchy and what was going on in Russia at the time. And people just loved him. The, the, the newspapers followed him around. He He was a very pleasant, affable guy. And he, you know, by that time, he pretty much had the Santa Claus look down pat. And he just seemed like the kind of guy that was a loving, gentle, Santa Claus-like figure that also was, you know, revolutionizing politics and, and um, revolutionizing science. And, you know, the thing that, that really, uh, the more I researched him, the more I began to realize how his science and his politics really were were one in a way that is is almost impossible to uh... today i mean so this you know his, his ideas on on cooperation and altruism and evolution quickly morphed into discussions of anarchy because he believed it was one sort of giant continuum and the same forces were in play in science and politics and people loved him for that i mean he he spoke at uh, he stayed at Hull House, which was this incredibly famous place in Chicago where celebrities n- used to stay. They all dressed in Russian peasant outfits in his honor. He would travel around the sewers in in Chicago, work talking to workers about whatever they wanted to talk to uh, him about, and he stirred the pot wherever he went. And and people just adored the guy.
0: And so. Uh, your background—you are an evolutionary biologist.
1: That's right. That's a right.
0: doctor of yeah. evolutionary biology.
1: That's that's right. That's right. I'm a professor of, of, of biology at the University of Louisville, and my specialty is the evolution of behavior. And my dissertation and much of the a lot of work I've done over the last twenty years um, has focused on the evolution of cooperation and altruism, and so that's what led me to Peter Kropotkin uh in the first place, um, because he wrote what for a long time was the classic book on this topic. Um and it was um an interesting combination where he praised Darwin but at the same time proposed a radically different answer to sort of what drove uh evolutionary change. So I, I came at him that way and then I discovered um that everybody else who had ever heard of him uh, came at it through the, the anarchy perspective. And then I started mm, reading mm-hmm. that literature and, and, uh, and my admiration for the guy grew. I'm, I'm not an anarchist personally, although I certainly understand it more than I used to. And I, I, I realize that there are actually some some interesting ideas in anarchy. And, um, you know, it's not this, uh, it, it's not this picture that most people have of, uh, you know, 19 year olds with a handkerchief over their face, throwing rocks at the World Bank leaders. Um, anarchy is, is, is a real political philosophy. And, and Kropotkin was one of the major figures at the time. And he, he paid the price. He spent a lot of time in prison um, for being an anarchist. Actually wrote a book on his life in Russian and French prisons as well um, it,
0: his stories of his of his imprisonment are absolutely amazing it 's a Hollywood movie written all over it i 'm unbelievable what he went through and even did basically what 's now called convict conditioning to keep himself strong and mentally strong
1: right, right I mean so he was thrown in jail by um, by the Tsar's secret police, because the Tsar didn't like uh, anarchists, and this is, this is despite the fact that for a number of years, Peter was the chief page to Tsar Alexander II, because he was such a brilliant guy, he, he, he went through a, a school that was training the next generation of Russian leaders, and along the way he fell in love with anarchy and became a real problem for the Tsar, but he knew the Tsar, and the Tsar knew him very well, they threw him in prison. Like you say, he had to do this convict condi- conditioning. He writes in his journal of you know, all the things he used to do, the number of times he would walk around his cell that he measured out to be uh, a mile or two miles or whatever it was. Um, they threw him into solitary confinement. Um, he, was in a, he was in a place called the Peter and Paul prison that had, had lots of famous prisoners in the past, but was fairly empty then, um, got sick, was put in the hospital, uh, really almost died. And uh, at the end, he broke out of prison, um, like you say, uh, in an escape that was the scene of movies that involved uh, (laughs) red balloons um, being lifted up over the walls and people playing mazurkas on their violin as a cue for him to leave. And he made it, got out of the country, went to England um, and, uh, and settled there and then traveled all over, Russia, uh, all over Europe and was basically um, expelled from every respectable country he, he went into because he preached anarchy uh, and and this was something that most of the world leaders were worried about at the time.
0: Yeah, and so uh, the, the big idea that I'm really interested in with Kropotkin is this idea of mutual aid and of course you mentioned Darwin and I'm not so sure there's a huge disconnect between what Darwin discovered and what Kropotkin was proposing, but I think it more so the other leading thinkers slash scientists of the time in England maybe kind of like railroaded Darwin's message. I'm thinking of Herbert Spencer, Thomas Huxley, this survival of the fittest modality, um, and Kropotkin had a completely different perspective about nature.
1: You're absolutely right. So so the the what happened was so the time frame that we're talking about here is you know, the eighteen seventies, the eighteen eighties, and Darwin's Origin of Species comes out in eighteen fifty-nine. And and in there when he talks about the way that natural selection works, he certainly does indicate that competition um, is is real, it's intense, it's a major force driving natural selection. But he also realizes that sometimes the way the way the way that competition plays out is that individuals are competing against harsh environmental factors, and that in order for them to do that, they actually end up cooperating with each other. This is something that Darwin talks about, not to the extent that he talked about competition, but it's certainly in Darwin's work. But as you say, um, the people who ended up really being Darwin's spokesman because he wasn't the kind of person that went out and talked about his theory. He was both ill and it wasn't his personality. And people like Thomas Henry Huxley were really the voice and face of Darwin. And they picked up on this uh, this dog-eat-dog dog world that Spencer would later describe as uh, nature, tooth, and claw. And that's what they talked about. Now, uh, Kropotkin read Darwin in Russian and when he was just... A, he he was barely 20 years old and he was and he was reading darwin talking about it with his brother and at the start he he really leaned towards this notion that um, that competition and and the dog eat dog world of of natural selection was 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 critical because for the most you know that's Darwin emphasized that more. And so when Kropotkin started his studies, he expected to see that. In fact, he saw nothing of the sort when he ended up going on what amounts to a five-year, much colder uh, version of the – The Voyage of the Beagle, he went to Siberia for five years um, and did natural history work both on animals and humans. Um, He also had another job, which was technically to be checking out prisons for the Tsar. This was before he was thrown in prison himself. So he Mm -hmm. was there as the Tsar's helper at this time. And he... went there thinking he'd see a dog-eat-dog world, in fact, saw the opposite, saw animals cooperating with each other at every turn. He talked about this as mutual aid. There were a few other people in Russia at the time who used that phrase, but he was the main voice of this notion that animals were cooperating with each other. They were exchanging acts of mutual aid because the world they lived in was so harsh, the temperature and everything about life in Siberia was so harsh that the only way they could survive was to help each other. And he also saw this in the human populations that he visited. Um, And this is really where his ideas on evolution and his uh, fledgling ideas on anarchy begin to merge because what Kropotkin notices is that there there seem to be differences across the human villages that he's visiting um, in his travels around Siberia. Some of them seemed to just be overflowing with these acts of mutual aid. They they were much more like a kind of medieval guild-like societies where all of these different organizations existed where people were helping with each other. And then he would go to other places and he would see much less of that and much more of a kind of competitive Darwinian-like world. And what Kapatkin realized was that there was an interesting correlation between what kind of behavior he saw and how far the villages were were from seats of government authority. The further the villages were from the hand of government, the more mutual aid he saw. The closer the villages were to some seat of government, the less mutual aid he saw. And so he began to think that government was the problem, not the solution. And that's really... You know at its heart, what anarchy is about anarchy and the anarchist philosophy in a nutshell is that if you let people interact in in small groups and the, without, the, the, without a government overseeing what they do, they will naturally do things to help one another and What he saw in Siberia really played into that, and at the same time he 's seeing this in animals and he 's looking at it from an evolutionary perspective and it 's all beginning to come together in this kid's head. I mean, the guy, you know, when he did this, when he went to Siberia, he was 20, 21, 22 years old. Um, and he's putting all of these ideas together in a way that, you know, most people never do. And certainly most 20 year olds never even think about.
0: Yeah. And didn't Darwin himself find mutual aid in his own science and in his own you know, oh, sure. uh, when he is looking at nature itself, not philosophizing or thinking about the idea, but the observance of nature reveals mutual aid, and he actually thought it may be the greatest uh, like mode of attack against evolution.
1: Uh, well, he certainly saw what what Kropotkin and others would call mutual aid, and and he wrote about it some in The Origin of Species. He actually wrote about it a lot more in his book on human evolution, The Descent of Man, um, where he he discusses mutual aid at at length in humans. I I think it might be an overstatement to say that um, he thought it was in any way a problem to the theory or that he thought it was the most important force. He did think it was important, but I think just proportionally – um, at least in the Origin of Species, the the sort of comp- competitive dog eat dog world view is a little bit stronger. But but certainly, he he saw many examples of mutual aid, and for him, they were they could all be understood in the context of natural selection. Whatever works best, selection favors. If, <laughs>
0: whatever works best. Okay. Right.
1: Whatever works best. So 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 if if you're in an environment where cooperating with others, be it other animals, or other not um, non you know be it but be it other non human animals, or be it humans, if that pays, then selection favors it. There are other environments where perhaps if resources are very scarce, um, well, let me step back for, for sure. Kropotkin. The 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 key was that he was studying animals and humans in environments that were very of resources, and, 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 and they were very harsh in terms of the kind of climatic variables. And so in those environments, Kropotkin thought you would end up getting mutual aid because animals simply had to help each other in order to survive against nature. Now, in the world that Darwin and Huxley and all of the Brits lived in, when they went and did their studies, they went down to South America, including not only Darwin, but Huxley did the same sort of thing. And in that world, you, 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 know, you, you tend to think of sort of tropical plush forests where there are Lots of resources, and there's lots of competition for those resources. In that kind of environment, it may be that mutual aid isn't as strong a force because simply by outcompeting either you know through physical struggles or other ways, individuals in that in your in your area you can get those resources. And so Huxley and Kropotkin and uh, Huxley and Darwin and and the Brits really saw evolution by natural selection through the lens of the tropical forests of South America where Kropotkin and the mutual aid school in Russia saw it through the lens of Siberia, and that's why they came to such diametrically different views of, of, of what was important. And uh, there, there are actually some wonderful um, history of science books that, that describe how that all happened in, in great detail. Um, but it really was a sort of Victorian versus Russian view of the world.
0: Yeah, I see. <clears throat> I I really kind of overlooked the abundance aspect of the South American, you know, flourishing jungle nature. I, I kind of overlooked that. I've been kind of obsessed. I guess I would call it uh, even, um, uh, you know, bias <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> towards the. It's it just seems like it's this Hobbesian view of the world that is just dominate dominates right. still to this day and especially sure. then with Huxley um, right. I'm by far no expert but I just have such a distaste for this industrial puritanical nonsense um, and, and, and the one thing that really sticks with me is uh, Spencer's you know, uh, survival of the fittest it's, it's, it's nearly a misnomer the way it's been used now um, it, it's used to justify just about any activity really
1: Oh, well, sure. And I mean, uh, there's certainly a lot of nasty history associated with um, the way that Darwin's ideas have been perverted. And there's certainly there's certainly no question that, um, you know, if you place those ideas and you place Kropotkin's ideas um, in the time in which they occurred, it, it's it's impossible to walk away and think uh, that the. Uh, Industrialist capitalist view that 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 dominated Victorian England didn't affect the way that Darwin saw the world. Now, in in many people will tell you that's not necessarily a bad thing because it did help him develop his theory. You may not like you may not like that political or economic uh, solution to, the, to things, but it but but I think, arguably that that did help Darwin see the world in a certain way that allowed him to come up with his ideas on natural selection, even, those, even though the, those ideas could easily and were easily adopted by socialists. I mean, Kropotkin wasn't the only one. Darwin's ideas were extremely popular in Russia. And and what they did was they simply removed the competitive element. They, they despised Hobbes and people like him. They they have all these wonderful phrases they came up with. Uh, you know, they called Hobbes a path thief. I mean, they, had, they, they despised Hobbes, they despised that view of the world, but they were able to remove that from their ideas on Darwin. And when they did, they ended up with mutual aid. But as you say, Darwin's ideas really cover both of these things. Um, and the, uh, the, the Russians were just uh, as, as willing to sort of mold the science to their worldviews. Just like the Brits were, were perfectly happy to place Darwinian competition in, in, in an industrial capitalist view of the world, so were the so were the Russians happy to say, you see, if you take the competition out, what you really get is something that's you know not dramatically different kind of from from, from socialism. You know, you get you get all these animals or human populations showing all sorts of, of, of nice nice behaviors to each other. They distribute the resources much more equi- equitably than in other societies and so you know there's plenty of uh, blame to to, to to lay around in terms of taking the science and applying it to your political philosophy happens all the time still happens today no question about it
0: yeah for sure for sure and when this uh, evolutionary idea it really is like it adds an an incredible level of complexity. Um, it Easily, is Darwin not, it, it, it wasn't, aren't his ideas the most profound idea a human has ever come up with? I mean, it well, blows my mind.
1: I would argue that it is, that, that 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 his ideas on evolution by natural selection really is one of the most profound insights in the history of humanity, I mean, this this is a view, this is this is this is a, this is a, a theory that has reshaped the way we think about everything, from uh, the history of, of life on this planet to the diversity on life o- on the planet right now. We can't understand it without Darwin's ideas. There's a famous quote that evolutionary biologists absolutely adore throwing around, which is nothing in biology makes any sense except for evolution, except except through the eyes of evolution or or through the light of evolution. The, The idea here is that nothing at all make sense unless you understand how evolution by natural selection works you, mm-hmm. can, you can look at little bits and pieces of what's going on in the world and understand them without the science of evolution but if you want to understand how things work as as a whole if you want to understand how systems work if you want to understand why things do what, the way they, do what they do if you want to understand why we see the life around us that we do you have to, you have to understand how evolution by natural selection works and and so, I, I, I think it, I would be hard pressed to come up with an idea that I think is more profound. Um, and it sort of saddens me that that there's still such resistance to to this idea from from circles outside of science. Uh, it, it, it's it's profoundly sad that that still occurs.
0: You know, part of the problem may be that I've I've read the quote that um, if Darwin were alive today, he wouldn't be a Darwinist. So maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure.
0: It's just been co-opted by uh, well, oh, so I many see. so many parties I playing see. games with science.
1: Oh, oh that, that's, that's certainly the case. But I mean, in terms of the science itself, I mean, a, a tremendous amount of it is sort of still driven by the basic ideas that Darwin came up with. Now, certainly we've refined them. We've expanded. We have all sorts of tools that weren't available to Darwin, but a lot of the basic ideas are come from thinking about uh, descent with modification. The fact that you know that that we all. Can trace ancestry back to a few primitive forms billions of years ago, and if you want to understand how things went from there, you understand that you understand how uh, life radiated and, 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 and extinction takes away things, and speciation adds things, and natural selection shapes the way things look and act and and and, and, and you have, and you, have uh, you have the basic ideas that drive a tremendous amount of work. Within all of biology, again, lots of, of refinement and revisions to Darwin's ideas, but it's remarkable how close they were to being right on the money, given how little was known about yeah, this it,
0: is, the we're, biology. In the, yeah, we're predating the knowledge of genes.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, we're predating the knowledge of de- genes. Um, we're talking about also a time when, you know, t- today there are – Hundreds, if not thousands, of experiments that are done on the evolution of cooperation and altruism, but um, the uh, uh, if you look in darwin 's time, nobody was doing experiments. I mean th- th- people did not do experiments on animal behavior or evolution in any real way, and yet, even without that experimental evidence, Darwin was able to Use what was known from natural history. Use what was known from breeding programs that people had developed for domesticated animals to to, to put together this, this this incredible theory. That in many ways he wasn't able to directly test the way that we're able to test them today um, by experiment by using all of the molecular genetic techniques that we have. And that just that just makes his work all the more, more incredible. I mean, it would have been incredible if he came up with the idea today and it hadn't existed already, but, but to come up with it at the time he did was, uh, an unparalleled scientific insight.
0: Absolutely amazing. And so altruism, altruism in nature. Um, what have you found? Um, I, I have your book here, the altruism equation, Right. Um, so I, I'm just now diving into that. I've been obsessed with Kropotkin lately, but I just w- want to hear more, a little more about altruism in nature and um, some of the things you found and discovered and some of the scientists that have worked on this.
1: Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, for the last, I would say, 30 to 40 years, there's really been a resurgence in studying altruism in nature. So even after... Um, Kropotkin came up with these ideas on mutual aid, there was really not a lot done um, for, for decades and decades. Um, in the 60s and 70s, the work kicked up again. Um, you know, we there are literally hundreds of studies and examples I could give you of cooperation and altruism in nature, but they, I think uh, maybe a better way to think about it is there seem to be, you know, three or four paths that lead to different types of cooperation that you see in nature. So one of the classic ones, one um, that I and many others have studied, is the importance of exchanging acts of altruism, the the idea of reciprocity. So the, the notion here is that you can get altruistic behavior to evolve if what happens is individuals exchange those acts of goodness. So if I help you you help me in the future. That sort of makes up for the cost that I lay out to help you at some future date when I need help, you'll help me. And there have been wonderful studies of this. So one of the absolute classics on this um, comes from work that was done um, on, of all things, vampire bats. So uh, are you familiar with this study at all? No, no
0: I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm, I am did want to clarify. You're, you're talking about a relationship um, of, of in, in animals that... We're not talking about Things that are self-aware, like you. At first, I was thinking, "Oh, we have an agreement. We're socially conscious." You're talking about in nature.
1: I, I am talking about. I am talking about altruism. I am talking about altruism in nature. I am talking about it from the perspective that I make no assumptions whatsoever about self-awareness in these animals. Well, I, I doubt that the vampire bats are self-aware. So far, the evidence is that, you yeah, know... I'm, I just humans, have this
0: inkling that they're not uh, right. doing a favor for someone so that next Wednesday they get something in return. Oh, no,
1: no, no, but, but well, okay. <laughs> All right, no, well, now, now, this is where we need to be careful. Sure, okay. Now, they act as if that is what they are doing, but you don't need to be self-aware, To do that, all you need to do is keep track of stuff that's happening in your environment, and some of that stuff is whether or not somebody helps you. So let me, let me, let me. I think the vampire bat example will will clarify this a little bit. So a vampire bat, you know, they get most of their uh, meals as blood meals. Um, They they grasp onto a cow or something on the field, and they and they get a blood meal. Well, this is an interesting way to to make a living in terms of getting food. One of the downsides of it is. Um, that vampire bats basically, if they don't get a blood meal in about every, uh, every 60 hours or so, they'll starve to death. So, they have these, you know, bats have this extraordinarily high metabolism. It, it costs a lot of energy to fly, and they're, and they're tiny little energy producing machines, these vampire bats. And if you don't get blood about every 60 hours, you starve to death. Okay, well, Jerry Wilkinson, um, who's at the University of Maryland, years ago did this wonderful study where he he marked a bunch of vampire bats and he studied them. They live inside these these tree, uh, you know, rotted out trees. And Wilkinson got inside there and was looking up at what they did. And it turns out that um, vampire bats will regurgitate a blood meal. To some of their nest mates, some of their roost mates, okay? So basically what happens is they, they basically stick their mouth down in the throat of another bat and regurgitate a blood meal to it. They'll, they'll, they'll basically cough up their blood and give it to the, to the bat that they're regurgitating to, which does, is fascinating. Does,
0: does this bat, would it need to be family or does it
1: it does not need to be family, although they are more likely to do it towards family. Okay, so even when you remove genetic relatedness, even when, you, when you're talking about acts of, of 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 this sort, outside of those done to family, you still see it. So family does play, they are more likely to help their genetic relatives, but they will help others. And the way that they determine who they will help if they're not a relative is a function of how that other individual has helped them when they needed the blood meal. So what Wilkinson wow, was, able to, yeah, what, what he was able to do was, was, was demonstrate that the bats are keeping track of who it is that fed them in the past, and they are more likely to help someone who's helped them when that individual needs help. In my lab, we were looking at Similar sorts of things in a very different system. And let me just say about the vampire bats again, you know, it's unlikely that they're self aware in the strict sense of that word. But they don't have to be self aware. All they need to do, I mean, certainly they remember, for example, where lots of cows are so they can get food. Okay, they remember lots of things about their environment. And another thing about their environment they remember is who helped them when they needed a blood meal. And they simply Re- reciprocate that act in the future, so when they 're deciding if they will help somebody, they use that piece of information about who's helped them. It says nothing about them being self aware it just says that they 're able to keep track of stuff. Um, in our lab, we looked at reciprocity in a different context so um, uh, one of the species I work with are guppies, the, you know, the, little, the little fish you find in pet stores, except we actually have them from their native populations um, down in Trinidad and Tobago. And what these guppies do is they, they live in groups and they, they undertake this behavior that's sort of the equivalent of guard duty. So what happens is you've got, you got a group of guppies swimming around. Okay, and there's something dangerous out on the periphery, something that looks like it might be a predator. And what happens is a couple of the fish break away from the group, and they go out and they inspect what this potential danger might be. Now, when they do this, if you watch... So we videotape this behavior, and when you look at the micro-dynamics of what's going on, what you find is that the fish start out doing this dangerous behavior, this dangerous inspection of, of a potential predator together. And then after that, they keep track of what the other inspector is doing. And if the other inspector stays by their side, they continue to go out and, uh, with it and, and, and take these risks to get the information. If their partner stops and starts to lag behind, they lag behind, and they wait until their partner demonstrates that they're willing to move again in unison towards the predator. They keep track of what, these, what their partners do. And then later on, if you give them a choice, they prefer to hang around other fish that have demonstrated that they will stay by their side when they go out and do these dangerous behaviors. Again, this, this notion that the animals are keeping track of what's going on in their environment, and they're exchanging acts of reciprocity in one way or another. Even in these fish that clearly, well, okay, I won't say clearly, I will say there's no reason to to suppose, nor do we have any evidence, that they have anything remotely like self-awareness. They simply are able to keep track of things in a way that when you look at it from the outside, it seems like it involves self-awareness, but it doesn't need to, and it probably
0: doesn't. I want, if this exists in animals, I would bet it exists in plants as well.
1: There, there are scant studies that have been done on that subject. Most people um, have not assumed that this was even a possibility for the longest time. There, there's a little bit of evidence that um, some of the chemicals that plants produce... Um, can, can provide information to other plants nearby about for example potential insect danger, and whether or not there 's any kind of exchange of that information in in in, in the sense of you know you, you leak out these chemi- you know these chemical cues if you 've received them in the past, nobody has even come close to looking at. It. We know that they can provide information that could be used in that way but Uh, You know, so far no one's done it. And it would be... I see. It would be difficult to imagine how it worked in the sense that, you know, even in guppies, they have a small but well-developed brain. And we know that they can remember specific events and specific individuals. In plants, I, I wouldn't say it's completely out of the question that some mechanism exists by which they can reciprocate. But I can't think of anything where people have actually... Experimentally looked at that. Although there are some papers, yep. there are some, there were some papers about talking trees in the past that indicated maybe this sort of thing was possible. Talking trees in the sense of chemically talking with each other, but I don't remember that study all very all very well at all.
0: I remember uh, a talk once I saw from um, uh, I think it was an Italian guy, Mancuso maybe, and he talked about the intelligence of plants. And this isn't going into the uh, the realm of you know, absolute plant intelligence, but um, an innate intelligence—kind of hard to describe. Yeah. But um,
1: yeah, well, they certainly act in then ways Then you
0: could go—you go could go, Terence. Yeah, you could go, Terence McKenna, and he said plants invented animals to spread their seeds. <laughs> and um, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. But the, you know, we we have bacteria here on Earth for a few billion years, and then plants for a billion or two and then some form of us comes along. So um, I I would imagine through natural selection that bacteria and plants have an incredible intelligence. We just are, we don't have the studies yet to understand what's going on there in total.
1: I I think it's fair to say that they are extraordinarily complex and their actions are much, much more subtle than we thought. Intelligence, is a loaded word, but they certainly... Yeah,
0: totally are, loaded word, well,
1: yeah, 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 I agree. There's t- certainly more... In fact, we have done, my colleagues and I at the university have done work on the evolution of altruism in, in E. coli bacteria. Um, in that system, what happens is that, you know, we're always trying to knock off microbes like E. coli, the dangerous ones, and, and all sorts of other things, salmonella, whatever, with, with with our antibiotics, right? And so there's very, very strong natural selection pressure um, on on these um, microbes to develop antibiotic resistance. Well, in the E. coli we work with, some of the lines of E. coli actually pump out a substance that breaks down antibiotics. So if you're an E. coli cell and you're near another E. coli cell that pumps this stuff out, you don't have to pump it out yourself. You don't have to produce it because you're protected by others in your environment. And it's costly for the others to protect you. It costs something to produce this substance that breaks down antibiotics and makes life as an E. coli good. If others are going to produce that, and you can get it for nothing, then natural selection should favor doing just that. And we have devised a whole series of experiments where we've looked at the dynamics of some of these E. coli cells that are altruists and some of them that aren't. There is more and more of this work being done on altruism in microbes um, as we speak. Again, much, much more sophisticated, complicated responses to their environment that we ever thought possible, say 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, bacteria, this is, I mean, this speaks to like the um, superorganism idea of bacteria where... You know, we have this notion of these individual strains of bacteria, and yet they shed genes, they transform. They're they're unbelievably uh, dynamic. Uh, yeah, no, I've been, I mean, I, I've been, uh, it's like my second favorite topic is <laughs> uh, okay. microbiology, bacteria, um, and I'm just utterly fascinated. You know, we we go on a antibacterial warfare. Um, we, we, we discover that, oh, it's um, H. pylori that causes heartburn, uh, you know, or GERD or acid reflux. And it, it turns out, well, it was on the scene, but it, it, now we've gone and attacked it. And now we find out, wait, H. pylori has other roles to play in the digestive system, that it, it's there for a reason. It's not an enemy. We look at all these new bacteria, we find them in a scene, and, we, we you know, we... Uh, think that there are some evil when th- it's a, you know a symbiosis. There has to be some kind of balance. Uh,
1: sure, I mean
0: we can't attack individual is- species of bacteria in us, except a, a, a few that we kind of invented, uh, like evil, deadly well, bacteria as we've invented through industrial farming and things.
1: Well, I think we're beginning to understand just how reliant we and all, you know, multicellular creatures are on microbial things like bacteria and even to some extent, maybe, maybe some, maybe some viruses. Um, I mean, we're beginning to realize that, you know, the vast majority of cells in a multicellular organism in some cases aren't even cells of that organism. They're bacterial cells of, of one sort or another. And, And we certainly, you know, if you try to clear out all the bacteria in your body, you'd be dead very quickly. Um, Yeah, since we're
0: 90 plus percent bacteria.
1: (laughs) Right. That said, there certainly are, um, you know, there certainly are all kinds of selection pressures on bacteria to get the most they possibly can out of whatever they happen to be living in. sometimes that involves mutualistic, altruistic things, and sometimes it involves competitive things. And so it's... Um, just like just like the dynamics in any 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 web of life, um, that's the same dynamics that occur inside a human who has billions and trillions of bacteria. Trying to figure out the best way to deal with with the problems that are caused is something that you know medical science works on all the time. Fortunately, they're beginning to take more of an evolutionary perspective, but it still takes it still seeps in. Very, very slowly, unfortunately. And and,
0: and this is the reason biology is and will be the last frontier of human knowledge. I mean, we may be able to send rocket ships to another galaxy someday, and I doubt we'll ever understand biology. It is unbelievably complex.
1: It is, and, and, uh, you know, Ed Wilson in his Consilience book basically argued that sooner or later this is all going to come together and it's going to come together in what amounts to a grand theory of biology through evolution, one way or another. that's That's what all disciplines that we're interested wow. in eventually yeah. will will um, realize is the way to tackle whatever questions th- they're interested right, in. Right, right. So, I mean, I, you know, no, I mean... I've read about
0: grand unification theories in physics, which seems eh, plausible that a human could come up with that. But one, uh, a grand unification theory for biology, I, I think, is well, 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 way beyond us.
1: Right. The closest thing that... Well, the closest thing that we have now is 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 the theory of evolution by natural selection. So, um, it's a nice one. But, I just wish people yeah, would stop
0: nice beating one. me over the head with it in bad ways.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I do too. I do too.
0: So, so yeah. who are some of the scientists we need to uh, discover if we want to go on an exploration of altruism in biology? Who are some of the people that have fascinated you?
1: Uh, well, you know, let's see. I mean, uh, Certainly there are, there are all sorts of folks who have worked with primates that do lots of altruism. So for example, Franz Deval is a primatologist who's worked with everything from bonobos to chimps to rhesus macaques, and has done all sorts of wonderful work on, on altruism um, and altruism from a very cognitive perspective as well. Some of the things that we've talked about with uh, m- not necessarily self-awareness, but very, very complicated cognitive things. Franz, Franz has done these... Um, has a book out recently called, I think it's called the bonobo and the, Oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. something like, uh, the ape and the sushi master. And he's got another one, uh, the atheist and the bonobo or something along those lines. He's done tremendous amount of work on, on things like chimpanzee politics, um, how they settle their disputes in ways that, you know, mimic simple political systems that, that humans have. Um, you know there are all sorts of folks who who study altruism and cooperation in in, in social insects like ants, bees, and wasps. Uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Kern Reeve, is is one of the folks that have done, that's done that. Uh, naked mole rats are another great example of studying altruism in non humans. Um, Richard Alexander and and a whole bunch of folks have worked on the naked mole rats. Paul Sherman they've worked on these. These systems, uh, naked mole rats, ground squirrels um, that show altruism in all sorts of contexts. So, <laughs> you know, those, those are some of the names. There certainly, there are probably hundreds of people that are working on this um, all around. And open up any um, behavior or evolution journal you find. It. Go into the bookstore, look for Franz Waal's books. Um, I'm trying to think, look for Matt Ridley's books, uh, look for Richard Dawkins' books, and, and you'll find it all over.
0: I I found one uh, scientist extremely interesting was is Hamilton.
1: Oh, right. Sure.
0: Um, his work, um, he actually came up with the actual equation, right?
1: Right. Hamilton was the person that... Uh, was the first to, to formalize mathematically a theory for the evolution of altruism. Um, his ideas initially focused a lot on how important genetic relatedness and kinship was family was in driving the evolution of altruism and he did come up with um, with a mathematical equation that predicts when you should see altruism among family members. Um, in, and in
0: this equation it, it more than just holds up it's, it's actually pretty profound isn't it?
1: Oh, right it, it's it's extremely profound it's, um, there are various versions of it some of them have but three variables in them so there some of the versions are very complicated mathematically other than others are quite simple they're boiled down to quite simple equations that make um, very clear predictions about about altruism in, in non-humans and humans and there are hundreds of studies that suggest that 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 the the core of, of Hamilton's theory is is right on the that it makes all of these predictions about when you should see altruism when you shouldn 't see it who should be be altruistic to who um, there's you know there, there 's certainly debates about about it still in the evolutionary community but most people would would, would tell you that the evidence overwhelmingly supports hamilton 's ideas
0: does this kind of go back to the um, what 's his name um, jbs
1: uh, hamilton 's idea uh, you know you could trace back the kernel of hamilton 's idea to uh, to a british scientist uh, j b s Haldane who basically
0: you see the one that said you would jump in a river to save right. two brothers, but not one right. eight, or, or cousins, eight cousins, but not seven
1: <laughs> that 's right that 's right so this was sort of where um, the the first uh, non mathematical version of, of of a theory of altruism by, by you know kinship came came, uh, came out, but, um, but Hamilton did so much with it, but, um, he certainly knew how Danes work. And there were others at that time who tinkered with this idea, but nobody really formalized it until Bill Hamilton did in, in 63. And, um, he's viewed as one of the founding fathers of, of modern behavior and evolution for for that work and others that he did as well. And he
0: had a very strange end to his life investigating AIDS in the Congo, I believe.
1: That's right. He, he, um, he went to the Congo to investigate, um, a theory for, um, for, for the evolution of AIDS. And what happened was, um, there's still, I think some question about the exact details, but basically, um, he got sick, had got malaria towards, probably got malaria towards the end of it. Um, took some, um, simple medication that they had given him before he left Africa and, um, the medication seems to have gotten lodged, perhaps in his duodenum. He came back to the United States, um, and felt sick, went into the hospital and they found that, um, whatever it was that had happened with the medication he took basically, um, had, uh, completely gone wild. And within a few, I think it was within a few weeks or so, he was dead. It was, it was, it was a tragedy. It was around the year about 2000, maybe 2001. Um, and- you know, science lost one of its one of its greats. I mean, it wasn't just the evolution and altruism work that Hamilton did. He he had probably half a dozen fundamentally important uh, new ideas uh, with respect to evolution and behavior.
0: And speaking of um, you know true important scientists, would you put Kropotkin in there in the science category purely? Oh, so if you
1: just look at him as a scientist, just as a scientist, right? I would say. His ideas for the time were really path-breaking. Uh, you know, there are people that will tell you that he wasn't a scientist in the in the way that we use that word he today. He may be
0: more like zoologist or something. Well, or... Yeah, you
1: know, he, he was a scientist in the way that Huxley was a scientist in the sense that, well, I mean, uh, let me take that back. I mean, he was, he was a scientist um, in the sense of putting together... New hypotheses for important phenomena in nature, working through those hypotheses, developing what, what kinds of things you would expect to see if he was right. Uh, he wasn't doing the experiments, he wasn't developing the mathematical models, but he was developing the ideas that really were the kernel of all yep. of the work. He was done an, 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 done astute,
0: an astute naturalist.
1: He was a student naturalist and he was a good evolutionary biologist and he proposed ideas that really drive the work that's been going on on cooperation and altruism for the last 40 years. I mean, people are just beginning to realize now that they can trace back so many of the things that they are doing to Kopotkin's work. Sometimes he, sometimes he was loose in the kind of language that he, he used, but if you study him and you really understand what he was trying to say... He was on the mark about a lot of things with respect to science, um, particularly evolution and biology, but not only evolution. He also was a very good geologist, but that's another story.
0: Yeah, entirely, and it can all yeah. be found in your awesome book, The Prince of Evolution. Oh, thank you. I really, okay. really, really love this book. Um, I have a little coffee shop here, a little cafe, and we have a little personal library. We, just, we, we have a lending library. And oh, this, this nice. book is so tattered. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so many well, people true. have thumbed through it. And um, a few really latch on and ask if they can take it home. Um, I, well, I absolutely what, love it.
1: Thank you very much. And give me, after we're off the air, give me your address, and I'll send you a bunch that you can put in there so people can uh, tatter them up over the years Oh, again. that's
0: super. That's, that is awesome. And I just, got, um, I just got delivered to me the altruism equation. Um, can't, okay. wait, can't wait to dive into that one. Oh, thank you. you. Oh, yeah. I mean, this has been uh, such fun uh, path of discovery for me. You know, this all started for me because I, of all things, it was diet. I I got into the uh, paleo diet, you know, this idea of eating a paleolithic diet for human health. Right. And I had never even thought about uh, evolution and how it could affect me or if it could, you know, as a as an eater (laughs) for my lifestyle. And then it just, one thing has led to another. And I started reading, you know, all these things. And then your, your books on, on, especially the book on Kropotkin, it, it, I just, man, I I just love that man.
1: I, I do too. And I, I, I really, I, you know, I've researched a lot of scientists and a lot of sort of history of science questions. And Uh, I've rarely come across anyone who was so brilliant in so many respects and was able to truly merge together so many different disciplines that, uh, you know, I'm in awe of the man's intellect. And I really think, um, you know, we owe him a a great, you know, uh, uh, he not just politically and not just scientifically, but. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, at all of the things that this man did and, and the way that he was able to integrate ideas from so many disciplines, we, we owe him, uh, you know, a, a great uh, debt. I mean, that we'll never I, be able to pay back.
0: Yeah, I wholly agree. And were you recently traveling over there in Russia?
1: I was recently traveling over there. Um, and uh, it wasn't this time about Kropotkin, but um, I did spend time in a Kropotkin archive in Europe. For a couple of weeks and uh and there really again began to see just how how incredible this guy was my trip to russia just now was for something else um uh and uh maybe we could talk about that in a couple of years when that project comes to okay fruition. sure
0: yeah. great awesome
1: but uh yeah i think i probably got to run off um but i really really enjoyed this
0: well thank you thank you so much i'm i had i i i I just had to get you on here because of that book. My show's been on hiatus for six months, and I said this is the one interview that's going to bring it back. And
1: oh, well, thank you. More to come. I I had a pleasure doing it. I I was it was a real pleasure doing it, and um, I'm glad I got got a chance to talk to you about this. Um, Anytime I can spread the word about Kapotkin, I'm happy to do it.
0: Thank you, Lee, and have a good evening. All right, you too. Take care. This goodbye.
1: Bye bye.